Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White in just a little bit. We'll go down memory lane with James, mainly talk about that Falcons-Patriots Super Bowl. We'll also get his preview on the big game coming up on Sunday as well. But it's got to be a lot of fun to talk about the great moments that the Patriots had, some of the great moments in Super Bowl history. And remember, James has a bunch of records from that Falcons Super Bowl game, so I kind of want to go through some of the plays that he made in that game. So I cannot wait for that. But where we start is in the NBA, because I know we're going to talk about the Super Bowl in a little bit here, but it's crazy, right? Like it's Super Bowl week in the NFL. Pat Mahomes could be the next great quarterback after Tom Brady, like the guy to take the mantle from Tom Brady as the guy that runs the league. And nobody on Thursday afternoon is talking about the NFL whatsoever with the Super Bowl being just a couple days away. Everybody's talking about the NBA because we got crazy fireworks that we don't ordinarily get at this deadline. Okay, so I want to get into this, of course, a lot from a Celtics perspective. And I think because Kevin Durant got traded late on Wednesday night, I should say technically early Thursday morning, and Kyrie Irving got moved earlier this week to the Dallas Mavericks, the reaction becomes, well, the Celtics didn't do something bigger like Durant moved, Kyrie moved, right? But you have to ask yourself, like at trading deadlines in the offseason, what's necessary? The Dallas Mavericks, they needed to try to give Luka a chance at making a run again, so they gambled and they took in the craziest player in the NBA, right? I mean, he's destroyed multiple franchises. The Suns' window is dwindling in Phoenix, right? I mean, so they needed to trade for Kevin Durant. Chris Paul is old. They just made it to the finals two years ago. They got to try to get back there, and they have to try to get back there soon. And if you look at it from a Celtics perspective, the Celtics weren't there. They were not a desperate team. And like I said, you have to ask, hey, what do you need at these trading deadlines? So if you go back to the 2020-2021 season with the Celtics, they made the trade for Evan Fournier. And at that time, Danny Ainge said, I want our players to feel hope. I want our coach to feel hope. 
I sense some discouragement internally with our guys, right? So that team just needed to be helped, right? And I'm not saying that Danny was wrong for doing that, right? Because obviously the Evan Fournier move didn't work out. But that team, to Danny's point at the time, it was completely lifeless. So they needed a jolt of energy, right? They needed some encouragement from the front office like, hey, guys, we're still trying to make a run here. We're still trying to go for it. Now, as I alluded to, it doesn't work, but that's exactly what that team needed. Does this team need encouragement? Does this team need a jolt of energy? Certainly not. It's the most loaded roster in the NBA, right? Okay, so think about that. What's necessary? What do you need? Last year, the Celtics did have a pressing need at the deadline. They needed to upgrade on the guard line. Dennis Schroeder had to go. And one of the things that irritated you is that he held on to the ball forever. Remember, he dribbled the shit out of the ball. So if you just look at some of the tracking data, he was at 4.90 seconds per touch. That was the highest on the team, right? Like by far. Average dribble per touch, 4.15. Again, highest on the team by a wide margin. You bring in a guy like Derek White, he's a connector to the offense, right? Average seconds per touch, 3.89. So a full second less Then a guy like Dennis Schroeder, the dribbles per touch 3.23 compared to 4.15 with Dennis Schroeder. So he fit into the offense better, right? Derek White came from that Spurs system where their whole philosophy is, hey, make decisions quickly, right? Drive, pass, or shoot. You got to do it quickly. Dennis Schroeder is the opposite of that, right? Schroeder was a guy that had passed on an $84 million contract from the Lakers, and he was looking for his next deal, right? So there was some... and. Not to say that he was a selfish guy, but in some sense, he was a little bit of a selfish player because he's looking for that next contract. So he was trying to prove he was worth another deal. And with Derek White, think about what you needed. He was a quick decision maker. He still is, of course, a quick decision maker. I don't know why I'm talking about him like in the past tense. He's an elite defender. Certainly that. And he's under contract until the 24-25 season. So all the things that you didn't have with Schroeder, you got with Derek White, right? Now, I know... You have a guy that fits perfectly in with Tatum with Brown long term, right? Like that's what Brad Stevens is thinking. I know now this guy will fit with Tatum and Brown. He knows who he is. He knows he's under contract. He knows how to play under this type of system where he's making quick decisions. Okay, so that was the need last year at the trading deadline. Then you go to this offseason. What did Brad do? Okay, he traded for Malcolm Brogdon. Well, what was the problem in the NBA finals? We know you had turnover issues, right? But the other problem was you needed another guy that could get a bucket, right? That became abundantly clear when Tatum wasn't cooking, when Jalen Brown wasn't cooking, and when they both were not cooking at the same time, you needed somebody else that you could just say, hey, can you take over for like five to six minutes and just get us a a bunch of baskets? Can you just take this game over? Okay. And a guy like Malcolm Brogdon, who is a massive guard, he can do that. Six foot five, almost 230 pounds, and he gets downhill, right? So you look at what Brogdon has provided. He is now in the 88th percentile as an isolation scorer. 1.17 points per possession. He's shooting 52.6% from the field. His effective field goal percentage is 57.9%. So this guy is an elite isolation scorer. So last year at the deadline, you got the connecting piece offensively and an elite defender in Derek White. And then in the offseason, you brought in a guy to help fix the problem of what plagued you in the offseason is, hey, you need a third guy that can just be a bucket getter like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And now you have that guy and you've seen the difference that Malcolm Brogdon has made. We saw it in the game against Philadelphia on Wednesday night. So that brings us to this deadline, right? Where you think about these teams making all these splashes, these big moves. What was really necessary for the Celtics at the deadline? It was all about a safety net and an insurance policy, so to speak, for Robert Williams and Al Horford. The Robert Williams situation 
In the Al Horford situation, it kind of scares you right now, right? Rob, of course, just missed the Philly game with the ankle situation. And Al also missed that game where he was dealing with knee swelling. And Rob is always going to be an injury risk, as we know. I mean, and Al, I've said this on multiple occasions. I worry about the minutes. Most minutes per game since the 17-18 season. He played in 69 regular season games last season and then 23 more postseason games. So do the math on that. What's that? 92 games last year. And he's 36 years old. So I worried about the health of Al, and I hope this isn't the start of a problem in terms of his knee swelling, because this is really the first time outside of the birth of his child where he missed a game that wasn't just a back-to-back where it's like basically a scheduled risk and they make shit up in terms of why he's on the injury report, right? So I hope this isn't the start of something, but it was necessary to make the move where you need to get somebody that can at least fill in at the big position, right? Because... The other issue with this is you just need some depth and you need some options, right? So as you all know now, the Celtics pick up Mike Muscala from the Oklahoma City Thunder. They trade away two second round picks. And again, this is what was necessary. Brad Stevens continues to make the right moves in terms of what's necessary. So this year, unlike the offseason with Malcolm Brogdon, unbelievable isolation score, last offseason, that connecting offensive piece, that elite defender, it was a smaller piece this year, right? It was a depth piece. So essentially, you gave up shit. You gave up nothing. You gave up two second round picks to get a guy that's just going to provide you depth. You would do that a million times. Oh, sorry. Justin Jackson was in the deal, too. (laughs) Who wasn't playing whatsoever. So let's just say that the other big guys that are out there, the other guy that maybe you wanted to trade for. Okay, Jakob Pertl. Okay, so who is better than Mike Muscala? I'm not denying that. Right. But did you see what the Raptors gave up? They gave up a first round pick, yes, protected, but also two second rounders. But the big thing there is they gave up a first round pick for Jakob Pertl. And Brad, as we've seen, he will use assets. We saw that in the past couple of trades. First round pick for Brogdon. First round pick to get off Kemba's contract and bring back Al Horford. First round pick for Derek White. So he's not afraid to do that. But those were moves that you really needed big upgrades, right? With Jakob Pertl, unlike White and unlike Brogdon, when you look at those moves, This is more of like a luxury item, right? Yeah, it's necessary in a sense, but you don't need to go crazy with it, right? Because here's the problem. And by the way, just on a side note, what the fuck are the Raptors doing? They kept all their guys. I I don't know. I thought they were supposed to be the most interesting team at the deadline. They moved on from none of them, and the team's not particularly good. Anyway, side note to that. But essentially what the Celtics would have been doing with Jakob Pertl is he has an expiring contract. You are not going to re-sign the guy. So essentially you would just rent a guy that... In a perfect scenario, he's not even playing for you in the postseason. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but the ideal playoff rotation for the bigs, as we saw last year when everybody was healthy, is, hey, they didn't want Daniel Tyson on the court. We saw, even when it was against Brooklyn, Tice was awful, right? So what you wanted was Al, Rob, and Grant Williams. Those are supposed to be your three big men because we know Grant can play up. So in an ideal world... Why would you trade a first round pick for a guy like Jakob Pertl that in all likelihood, if those guys are healthy, is not going to get major burn in the postseason? And that brings us to another guy like Jared Vanderbilt, who would have been a really nice piece to add with this team. Energy, and he provides more upside, of course, than Mike Muscala at his age. But he was part of this big three-team deal, right? Danny's number one priority out in Utah was trying to acquire another draft pick, and he did. And the way you do that is you don't just involve Mike Conley in the deal, but Jared Vanderbilt is part of that three-team deal as well, and it's protected one through four. So that's a really juicy pick that Danny Ainge got in that deal, and Danny wanted the pick. So Vanderbilt was part of making that deal all work. So that was an unlikely deal once the Lakers were hunting for a point guard and trying to get rid of Russell Westbrook's contract. And Utah got involved because they wanted 
or excuse me, Minnesota got involved because they wanted Conley to help Gobert. So that enables the Lakers to put the first round pick in there because they feel like they're upgrading getting D'Angelo Russell. So Danny gets involved just to get another draft pick. So the Celtics were likely out of that sweepstakes. Okay. So that's how you end up with Mike Muscala for nothing, just Justin Jackson in those two seconds, as we allude to. But what Muscala is, is he's an insurance policy, right? He's a body. And here's the interesting note on Muscala. Like, the Thunder have been really good when this guy's been on the floor. So this season, and like I said, I'm not telling you that this guy is a game changer. In all likelihood, all he is is a depth piece, and ideally, that's all you want him to be. But look at these numbers with the Thunder with him on the floor this year. 119.2 offensive rating, 110.6 defensive rating. So per 100 possessions, they are outscoring opponents by 8.6 points per 100 possessions. That's really good, right? Thunder with them off the floor, 113.4 offensive rating, 115.1 defensive rating, minus 1.7 net rating. So that means the on-off differential for Mike Muscala, plus 10.3 in terms of the points per 100 possessions compared to him on the court or him off the court. So he's really helped the offense. And this is not just like, one year, right? If you look at it over a stretch there, which goes back to it's five years that he's been essentially with Oklahoma City or a four and a half, I should say. They are plus 2.1 points per 100 possession better with him on the court. And then if you look at him when he's off the court, minus 6.1. So you're talking about 8.2 points per 100 possessions difference with Mike Muscala on the court for the Thunder over the past four plus years compared to him off the court. Shooting. This year, he's shooting 39.4% from three-point territory. Last year, he shot 42.9%. So this guy is a legitimate stretch five, if you will. So like, I really don't look at this as a massive upgrade, but the C's really didn't need one. They didn't need to make a massive upgrade, right? I'm not saying cue the duck boats because they got Mike Muscala, but since Rob came back, he's been dealing with his ankle situation. Then you look at Al, as we mentioned, he's been dealing with this knee swelling now. So this became something you needed to add to Blake, who had a million threes against the 76ers the other night or Cornette behind those guys. You just want to have more options because ideally, as we alluded to, the big man rotation is Al, Rob, and Grant in the postseason. But let's just say one of those guys goes down. Don't you want another guy in addition to Luke Cornette, who I know some of the numbers tell you they've been really good with him on the floor. And I said the same thing about Mike Muscala. I never feel great about Cornette on the court. I felt actually better last night, like Blake was shooting the shit out of the ball. He looked really comfortable out there. I know the guys love having Blake around in the locker room, but Mescal is a guy that's a legitimate shooter. He's been doing it for years from three-point territory. So it gives Joe Mazzulla some more options in terms of when you get in the postseason, if, and knock on wood, this doesn't happen, if you suffer an injury to either Robert Williams or Al Horford. And the other thing I would just say about this is, Muscala is cheap as shit. $3.5 million this year. He's on a club option for next year. He actually fits in to your TPE. So I just go back to this whole idea. Why would I give up a first round pick for Yaka Pirtle and then the guy's going to leave after the season, right? Which in in an ideal world, Yaka Pirtle wouldn't be playing for the Celtics anyway into the postseason. The other thing that Muscala helps with too, of course, is just the innings eater, where he can help get you to the finish line at the end of the season so you can give Al some more time off. So you don't have to play Al over 30 minutes per game. You can give Rob some more time off. He's just another guy that Joe Mazzulla can go to down the stretch of the season here. So look, this isn't a game-changing move for the Celtics whatsoever, but we've been talking about what for like a month and a half now. Hey, what could the Celtics add at the deadline? Well, it would be really nice if they could add it a depth big and they added a depth big. And I actually like the big they added a guy that can shoot. So I think Brad did the right thing at the trading deadline. All right. So let's flip to one other thing. And we talked about this with Keith Smith on Tuesday's pod. The C's could add to the wing line. 
They didn't have a lot of matching salary to go after a wing that was on the trading market. So that's more likely to happen on the buyout market. But again, this is sort of like the Mike Muscala thing is you need somebody that can eat up innings during the regular season, right? It's not so much about getting somebody for the postseason. You're talking about the Terrence Rosses, Josh Richardson's of the world, right? Guys like that, Will Barton's of the world. And especially now with Jalen dealing with this facial fracture, let's hope it's not too long. Now, I know he's going to be out until after the All-Star break, it appears, but somebody that can just steal you minutes, not somebody that's going to be heavily involved in the playoff rotation, but just somebody that can help you down the stretch of the season. So that's something else that we could see in the coming weeks here that they add somebody just cheap on the scrap heat. And the other thing about that is the Celtics are an appealing destination, right? Like if you're a veteran in this league, if you're a Will Barton, if you're a Josh Richardson, if you're a Terrence Ross, like you want to try to win a championship, the Celtics are a team that gives you that opportunity, right? All right, so let me move on to this. And like I said, those guys too, just like Mascala, they're not game changers. They're just depth pieces. The Celtics did not need a game changer. They just needed to add depth. All right, so just for the sake of bringing this up, the C's were never getting Kevin Durant. You look at what the Suns gave up, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson. So they're two best young players, okay? And four unprotected first round picks along with a pick swap. Like Bridges and Johnson are really good players, especially Bridges. He was an all-NBA defensive guy last year, finished what? Runner up to Marcus Smart for the defensive player of the year. Johnson, by the way, is shooting 45.5% from deep. I know he dealt with an injury earlier this season, but this guy's a legit three-point shooter. So who would the C's have to give up for a hypothetical Kevin Durant trade? So the four first-round picks, they don't even have one this year because of all the trades they've made. But you look at it, so Jalen Brown would obviously have to be in the deal. He's your best young player that you would actually consider trading. You're not trading Jason Tatum. And then remember last summer, they wanted Marcus Smart and another rotation piece along with Jalen and all those picks. So who's that? Grant Williams, who's like your best defender on Kevin Durant, right? I mean, that's a lot of stuff that you'd have to put in the deal. Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Grant Williams, and picks just to acquire Kevin Durant. And look, Phoenix... Over the summer, their offer was bridges and picks like Cam Johnson wasn't even in the deal. So they actually had to up their offer. So it may have even been even more than that. So the C's right now, they're the number one seed. They've been the best team in the NBA. Midstream, you're not going to trade away your second best player and what three of your top six players just for Kevin Durant. The Celtics were not that desperate. They know they can win a title as they currently stand. Phoenix was desperate. They have an aging Chris Paul. We talked about Devin Booker now in year eight. And they needed to try to make a run, to try to get a championship, especially with the ages of these players, mainly Chris Paul. So they needed that boost. The C's didn't. And if I'm getting rid of all those assets for first, Jalen, my most valuable commodity, if you will, I'm concerned about Kevin Durant's personality, right? First of all, look how it ended in Golden State. I mean, that was a mess. I mean, Draymond didn't get along at the end whatsoever. And then he asked for a trade last summer after just signing an extension. So this guy, of course, he can be insanely prickly. And on top of that, he's a guy now with serious health concerns. We know that he had the Achilles tear. We know that he had an MCL issue this year. He's still not ready to play, right? He's dealt with foot stuff in the past. Now, to Durant's credit, he always comes back from these injuries really, really at a high level. When he comes back, he still looks like Kevin Durant. But these are a lot of injuries that are starting to pile up. And I'd just be very worried about acquiring this guy, especially considering the improvement level that we've seen from Jalen Brown. Like before the season, I probably would have done it now after seeing what Jalen's become and seeing how this group kind of fits together. 
I wouldn't do that deal because I feel like you're sacrificing way too much depth. Think about what the move we just talked about. Like the Celtics need to add depth on the big man line. You're just completely getting rid of your depth. And yes, Kevin Durant's better than any of those players. He's better than Jason Tatum. Like that's all true. But you really want to bring that guy in and get rid of all your depth, get rid of your second best player when the guy's a health concern and he could be an issue in the locker room as well. The C's weren't that desperate. And this is going to sound corny as fuck, right? But I don't want Durant at this point. I don't want him. I really don't. And just as a slight digression on Durant, this guy better win there because you look at him. He could not win before he went to Golden State. And then he joined Golden State after he lost to them in the conference finals. And he joined the team that had won a championship. And then the season after he or the season before he went there, they set the record for the most wins in the history of the regular season. Like he goes to that team. Then he leaves Curry. Curry just won a championship last year. And now this Brooklyn thing, which is on his resume, is an epic disaster, right? He chose to pair up with Kyrie. So he joins Kyrie Irving and James Harden, who he got James Harden to trade. That blew up. Now he's joining another all-NBA player in Devin Booker and a team that made the finals just two years ago. And you look at it, you better win now. Because I think that part of Durant's issue here is He really loves basketball and he wants to go to good basketball situations, right? And that's why he went to Golden State. I really believed he looked and he said, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to be passing the ball like crazy. And it was like the perfect fit basketball wise, right? He fit in perfectly with that group, but he underestimated how miserable he would be personally with the criticism for making that move going there. And then secondarily, like Curry being their guy, like they're chanting MVP for Curry in the finals when Durant was the best player in the finals for them, right? So he tried to create in Brooklyn, a basketball and a personal perfect situation for himself, right? And what happened? It all blew up in his face. And by the way, did you hear what Kyrie said about Durant last night when he was interviewed after the game? He said, I'm happy he got out. Yeah, Kyrie, you guys were the victims there. (laughs) You guys made them pay a tax the day you guys signed there. Hey, you got to bring in our friend DeAndre Jordan. But hey, you guys are the victims in this, Kyrie. Unbelievable. And I just think that, look, he's going to be happy with Booker in terms of a basketball situation. And this team is going to be impossible to stop offensively. And you look at it, I mean, some of the numbers, they were the third best half court offense last year, according to cleaning the glass. Now they have a healthy Booker back and you add Durant. They're averaging 23.9 points per game on pull-ups, fourth in the NBA. Durant's averaging 12.2, which is first, and Booker's third at 11.4. Obviously, that's massive in the postseason just to be able to hit pull-up jump shots. We talk about it all the time with Jalen. They take 14.7 mid-rangers a game. That's fourth in the NBA. Durant's at 57.1%. Best of any high-volume guy, like by far. Durant's the best mid-range shooter in the game. So it fits perfectly from a basketball perspective. And from a Celtics perspective, I like Durant out of the East and Kyrie. One less team to worry about. But if you get to the finals, obviously that team's going to be a bitch to deal with. But I'd much rather get to the finals and deal with that rather than deal with them in the Eastern Conference. But you start to think about it when you look at Durant and just like the long-term legacy. I don't know how much credit he gets if they win in Phoenix, right? He went to a team that had just made the finals. He goes to a really good team. I just don't think he's going to get the praise that most players would for winning a championship, right? And I look at it too, like when I look at the Celtics long-term here, it's all these guys from a fan perspective where you're seeing all these guys grow together, right? Like, and I can't remember if I mentioned this here or at my old employer, but wouldn't this title be more rewarding with the crew you have? Like, I mean, look at when Dirk won in Dallas compared to LeBron Wade and Bosch in Miami. 
which kind of felt like a shortcut, right? It kind of felt like they were cheating the system. That Dirk title in Dallas means more than the two titles that LeBron, Wade, and Bosh won in Miami. What's more valuable, the 14 Spurs championship or the second and third Warriors titles when they added Kevin Durant? Heck, the last Warriors title means more to Steph Curry than the two that he won with Kevin Durant. So there's something growing and building, right? Like these guys built up calluses together. They went through difficult losses, whether it be in the bubble to the Miami Heat, whether it be last year in the NBA Finals. And there is something rewarding if they can bust through, right? From a fan base perspective, it'd be very rewarding to see that, but also for the guys as a team. So I am happy that they don't have Kevin Durant. And this just this isn't sour grapes or anything along those lines. I just really like the team, and I'd like to see them win it with this core group of players, right? All right, so just real quickly on what else happened in the East. The Bucks get Jay Crowder for five second-round picks. The second-round picks are going like crazy today, by the way. So Crowder, I know he's played on a lot of winning teams, but he's also a tad overrated to me. Like the dude is streaky as fuck. You look at Crowder. So last three postseasons from three-point territory, 128 of 366. That's 34.9%. And he bombs them. 6.5 three-point attempts per game over the past three postseasons. He's shooting 34.9%. And like to the Bucks' point, like this is necessary for them. The reason they make this move is because of the Celtics. They needed more bodies to throw at Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So this move did make sense for them specifically for the Celtics. Like this is a move that they desperately needed to make. And if you go back to that series last year, and I know they didn't have Middleton either, right? But Middleton's never been a great defender. But last year, the Seas would just put Grayson Allen in the action and they would take advantage of it. So this is certainly an upgrade there. But I don't see them, or I don't see Crowder, I should say, being a stopper on Jason Tatum or Brown. First of all, Jalen is too quick for him. And big bruising defenders don't bother Tatum anymore, if you've noticed over the past year. And we saw, like, at times, Holiday really could give Tatum trouble in the past, right? Because he could get, kind of like Lowry did, like, early in Tatum's career, he could get underneath them. But what we've seen lately, when Jason Tatum went up against Drew Holiday on Christmas, he's just too small for him. Like, Drew Holiday's not a good matchup for Jason Tatum anymore. It's nothing against Drew Holiday. The guy's an elite defensive player, but he's too small for Jason Tatum at this point. So, yeah, you need the wing that can match up size-wise and add to covering Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for you. But the guys that give Tatum trouble now are really like the Andrew Wiggins type, right? Where he can match you athleticism-wise and also with size. Jay Crowder can't match him with the athleticism. And quite frankly, from Crowder's perspective, he can't match Tatum with size either. As for Philly, they got Jalen McDaniels. Now, this is interesting. I know Thibel had fallen out of favor there, but going back to that long, lanky wing thing, he did give Tatum some trouble on Wednesday night. Like he had that late contest on a three. So he actually did a pretty good job on Tatum late in that game. But I get it. Like he can't shoot at all. So that you bring in McDaniels, who by the way, is not shooting great from deep either this year, 32.2%. But he's a better player. He's a pretty good defender too. 69th percentile as an isolation defender. So slight upgrade for them. And Doc will at least play the guy. He wasn't playing Thibel whatsoever. But not a big move from the Sixers from my perspective, a little bit of an upgrade, which brings me to the East in general now, and then some of the thoughts on Philly. So first off, Brooklyn is done, as we mentioned, so that takes out a threat. So now the one seed, from my perspective, becomes important. You want Milwaukee and Philly to battle it out in the 2-3 matchup and have that series get ugly, right? Because those are two real physical teams, where you're talking about Embiid and you're talking about Giannis. Ideally, you want those two guys to beat up on each other or those teams to beat up on each other. And then the Celtics are waiting in the Eastern Conference Finals. And we did also see how important home court advantage was against the Bucs last year. Remember, the Celtics blew out the Bucs in that game seven. 
And then you're looking at Cleveland, Brooklyn, Miami, four, five, six. Now, Miami's two and a half back of Brooklyn. You'd expect them to catch them. Although Brooklyn has a lot of good players now. They just don't have any star power, right? I mean, well, I guess Cam Thomas. I mean, that guy's going nuts. But anyway, Miami scares me the most out of this group because of Spolstra, Butler, and Bam. Those three guys, right? I mean, Bam killed them in the bubble, 22-11-5 in that series. And then we just saw in the loss a couple of weeks ago that the Celtics had to Miami. Bam took over in the fourth. He went for 30-15. and 15. And Spolstra, he messes around with that zone. I just don't want to see Spolstra in the postseason. Cleveland, they don't have enough on the wing line. As much as I love Garland and Mitchell, you have two elite guards and they're going to be tough to defend, but the Celtics have a bunch of guys they can throw on them, Derek White, Marcus Smart, et cetera. But you look at the Celtics' best two players, they're wing-sized guys, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They don't have wing defenders that they can throw at those guys. So that in terms of just the Eastern Conference, that's why down the stretch of the season, getting an extra guy like Mascala to help out and give you some minutes there. That's big from that perspective. But also the Celtics, I don't think they're going to slow down whatsoever. They're going to be hunting for that one seed. That's why this Jalen injury is pretty important here because the Celtics, before the All-Star break, they have the Bucks again and they do have the Memphis Grizzlies. I know they're not playing well, but they do have the Grizzlies as well. So just try to get that one seed from my perspective, just so you can avoid having to play Philly and Milwaukee. Just play one of the two because you know those are going to be physical series. Now, speaking of Philly, I'm not as threatened by them. You look at that game on Wednesday night. Embiid is one for five in the fourth quarter. Harden is one for three in the fourth quarter. The Celtics were down Jalen Brown, who left, of course, at halftime with a facial fracture. They were down Al Horford, Robert Williams, and Marcus Smart. So what, three and a half starters, basically. And the guys that would ordinarily get the Embiid assignment, Rob and Al, weren't even available. And when you look at Embiid, he makes bad decisions late in games. His decision-making is just too slow, right? Like when he had the ball at the nail on Pritchard, he's just sitting there like, dude, you got to go. You got a guy that is like five foot five on you and you're just standing there at the nail, like make a quick decision. But anyway, it just feels like, and maybe this is an overarching thing in the NBA, it feels tough to run your offense through that old school center that wants to play in the post a lot late in games. Like you ideally want that playmaker, your best player to be the playmaker, a la Jason Tatum. And then with Harden, even though he's healthy again, he's not the same athlete from an explosion standpoint, right? And when you game plan for Harden, you'll be aware of, hey, let's not follow him, right? Like we see that all the time with Harden. He gets away with these stupid, he draws these stupid fouls. That's not going to happen as much in a postseason series. We've seen it multiple times. And we know that Harden in the postseason, this is why I'm not that threatened by Philly, he'll throw up a ton of stinkers. Last year, 14 points in 37 minutes in game five against the Heat. 11 points in 43 minutes in game six, the loss to the Heat in elimination game. He had 11 points. You go back to, remember that game that he played against Kawhi Leonard, where, or I should say against the Spurs when Kawhi Leonard had to sit out because he was dealing with an injury back in his Houston days? 10 points in an elimination game? Flat out embarrassing, right? And then last night in general, or I should say Wednesday night, that was just a bad loss for Philly. I mean, all those guys out and you lose. And the other thing that makes me feel confident about playing Philadelphia is, did you hear what Blake Griffin said after the game about our buddy Glenn Rivers? He was asked about being left open because remember, Blake hit five threes in that game. He said, quote, I don't take it as disrespect. It hurt them. That was their game plan. Obviously, Doc makes the game plan. (laughs) They didn't adjust, which has been sort of a thing. No disrespect, though. So basically, yeah, you are disrespecting him, which Blake is completely right. Doc has been a bad playoff coach. I mean, it makes the 08 run for the Celtics even more impressive. Remember, Doc is the only coach in NBA history to blow more than one 3-1 series lead. He's done it three times. So you have the biggest choker 
from this era in terms of a player in James Harden, and you have the biggest choke artist as a coach in Doc Rivers. Like, And maybe I'm going to sound like an idiot for this. I'm just not threatened by that team. A couple notes on that game against Philly. Uh, Derek White was sensational again. The play that he made with about 8.30 left in the game, he has a chase down block on Tobias Harris with the game at 92.85. Just a ridiculous block. The guy's a guard. He has 50 blocks on the season. Only Shea Gilgis-Alexander is more in the guard line. Just ridiculous stuff. And then what happens? Fast break the other way. Hauser hits an open three, gives you a 10-point lead instead of Philly cutting it down to five points. Those are the type of winning plays that we see from Derek White often. And you look at his last four games, and of course, Smart hasn't played in any of these. 18.7 points per game. 50% from the field, 42.9% from deep. So he's found his shot again. He's playing at a really high level. Another good sign from that game against Philly is Hauser played well again. So 15 points against Detroit on Monday, and then he had 14 points in 20 minutes against Philadelphia. So he's now nine for his last 13 from deep, which is 69.2%. And he had really been struggling shooting the ball. I mean, and he had fallen out of the rotation because of that. So you look, October through November, 47.9%. December through January, 29.5%. February, small sample size, four games, 11 of 19, so 57.9%. I mean, that 29.5% December through January, you couldn't really justify playing him because he doesn't give you a lot of anything else. Now that he's hitting his shots again, very important, especially now with this injury to Jalen Brown, he can give you some minutes and hit some shots for you. Another big one to me was Grant in that game. So we talked about, I can't remember if it was Sunday or Tuesday, they needed more from Grant, right? So Grant in that game against the Sixers, 15, 8, and 5, he had been in double digits just once in his last seven games before last night. And I feel like Grant plays his best when he has a specific challenge, right? Like when he went for 25 against Toronto, Tatum had that night off, Smart and Rob both left with with injuries, so you needed him to score, and he did. Wednesday against Philadelphia, no Al, no Rob, so he knows the challenge is, hey, you're going to have to deal with him beat a lot. And he dealt with Embiid more than anybody else. And look, he held Embiid to 6 of 13 shooting. Not great. 46.2% from Embiid, a guy that's over 50%, but he made him work. He also turned Embiid over two times. And he pissed off Harden and he pissed off Embiid, which is like, these are the games that you need Grant Williams to step up. And it does feel like when he has a specific challenge, when it's just a regular game and there's not a specific guy he needs to guard, Grant isn't as good. But when he has that specific matchup, He plays really well, and he did so last night. I mean, one of the impressive things, too, to me about Grant, on a short roll, he hit Hauser for an open three. It's like, okay, they're using Grant in the screen action. He was really productive there. He also set a screen for Jason Tatum, like near half court. Tatum got downhill, got to the free throw line, which I think they should actually try to do more. It's a very heady play by Grant because then Tatum gets going with a full head of steam, and it's very easy for him to get downhill that way. And then Another play that he made in this game that Tatum ended up missing the shot, but he's on the right wing. He threw a right-handed pass, one-handed pass, all the way to Tatum on the left wing. Like, that's a play that Tatum makes a lot, but I'd never seen Grant make that play. So just one of those, like, oh, shit kind of moments from Grant Williams. So he was really impressive, and we know he likes to guard Giannis as well, and he plays well whenever they play the Bucs, so that's important. And then finally, just Brogdon. Jalen goes out. He was exceptional in this game. He goes for 19 points. The most impressive thing I saw from Brogdon last night P.J. Tucker is like a fire hydrant, right? Like that guy is jacked. He's stocky. And Malcolm Brogdon, who I alluded to earlier in terms of the isolation numbers are great. He actually pushed him back for an and one. And you do not see guys move P.J. Tucker. That's how strong Malcolm Brogdon is. But exactly what you need from Brogdon when Jalen isn't in the lineup and exactly when he's why he's on this team. Another guy that can get buckets. 
All right, a lot more to get into. We're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White in just a little bit. And I did want to say this. So you could obviously leave us a voicemail as always, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. But we have an email line too, where you can email us at offthepike at gmail.com. That's offthepike at gmail.com. All right, coming up next, we'll chat with James White. Three great words, free fries Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax, must update rewards. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, it is three-time Super Bowl champ James White, a guy that knows a thing or two about winning Super Bowls. James, it's Super Bowl week. How are you, man? Doing well, man. Can't complain. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. We're getting ready for the big game. Wish it was during your era when the Patriots were playing in a lot of them. But I mean, we had 20 years, so <laughs> we got the Chiefs and the Eagles. Hopefully it's a fun game. But before we get into some of the Super Bowls of the past, your former teammate, Tom Brady, who you played in a lot of those Super Bowls with, of course, retired. Were you surprised, James, to get the news? Like I was under the assumption he was going to come back. Maybe it's go play with Josh and the Raiders, but somewhere else, maybe San Francisco. Were you surprised to get that news? I definitely was a little bit surprised especially the way their season went, you know, for himself. Obviously, a down year for him is a great year for many other quarterbacks. Their team just couldn't really get it going all year long, just very up and down. So I always vividly remember him doing an interview, I don't know how long ago it was, but saying he retired when he sucked. And obviously, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he he doesn't suck. So I was expecting for, for him to come back, you know, you know, compete and try and fight for another championship. But then, you know, I thought about it a little bit, you know, with all the ups and downs of this year, you know, on and off the football field, you know, as a football player, dedicating your life to the game for 20 plus years is a lot. And you spend a lot of time, you know, away from your family, especially for him. He puts so much into it. And like I said, he has a full time trainer, full time, you know, has Alex there all the time, making sure his body's, you know, in peak shape and doing all the right things. So he's the best player he could be. You know, each and every time he steps into the building, not just on game days, but, you know, for practice and meeting. So he's dedicated so much to the game. And like I said, I know this year was probably the most stressful year he probably had in his career. And it, ta- it takes a toll on you. And I, I only played eight years, so I couldn't even imagine, you know, playing 20 plus years at the quarterback position and being, you know, the best player in the league and having to live up to that each and every year. That, that's, that's a lot. And it weighs on you. So like when I, I had to process it a little bit, I was like, it does make sense. And like I said, I think the timing is right for him. And obviously he already has things set up for, for, you know, post football. And like I said, the guy can do whatever the heck he wants in this world. And obviously he can't live a, a normal life, but he gets to, you know, be there probably a little bit more for his kids than he ever was before and his family and all that stuff. Well, speaking of that, did you see the picture he put out on Instagram like two days ago where he's like shirtless taking a picture of himself? I mean, James, you haven't been retired that long, but you may have to talk to him, man. I don't know how he's bored already. I mean, he's he's building his his clothing brand. That's all it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's that that sells right there, you know? <laughs> I, I hear you, man. So, hey, I had Ted Johnson on who, of course, played with Brady in the early years when he won three Super Bowls early. So you're better to answer this question than Ted was. So we heard stories about like when rookies came in, Tom would go around and introduce himself to every rookie. So when you came into the league, did that happen to you? Did Tom come up to you and introduce himself? It's not like 
I wouldn't say it's like a like he's literally going up to every single person yeah. like like that, but he's not gonna avoid like a conversation with anybody, like whether it's you know before practice or just walking by somebody in the locker room. He is gonna introduce himself, and like I said, he never put himself above anybody. But obviously, he realizes who he is, and like I said most rookies and young guys coming to that locker room have watched him probably since you know they were in you know middle school, high school, and things of that nature. So. There's a lot of stuff that comes with it. And they you're always gonna wonder whether he thinks, you know, he's just that guy and he doesn't really have to talk to you or whether he's willing to approach you. He's always been willing to approach everybody. He's gonna know everybody's name on the team from the undrafted free agent that year to, you know, the the next <laughs> oldest guy on the team. You know, he's gonna know he's gonna know the janitor, he's gonna know the equipment manager, he's gonna be cordial to everybody. He you know, he never put himself above the team. And that's what's so special about him. I think that's why, you know, when a guy like that of that stature, when he's willing to get to know you as a young player, like you, you want to perform at your best for that guy. Cause you know how long he's, he's had this success. You want to, you want to get what he had. Obviously you won't get all the <laughs> accolades that he has, but <laughs> you, you want to try and have the success that he had and you try and fight for a guy like that. Yeah. It's crazy to think about like, from the football I remember watching, like, I don't have a football watching experience where Brady wasn't, like, in the NFL. Like, I don't really remember the 90s, you know what I mean? Like, my whole mm-hmm. life it was with Tom Brady, yeah. so it's going to be really weird next year. It was cool to see him and Bill catching up and talking about their time together, which everybody, we know how it ended. It didn't end well, but it was nice to see those guys sort of talk about everything because that's how it should be remembered. I mean, this was a dynastic run for 20 years, so I'm glad we got to hear that the other day. All right. So let's get to some of the good stuff because you played in a bunch of Super Bowls. So 2016. So this is the year that Tom serves the four game suspension to begin this, this the season for everybody knows the deflate gate bullshit that made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, really, the only reason that suspension held up was because they found that Roger Goodell had the power to hold it up, even though the report was a bunch of garbage like it was a joke. I mean, everybody knew it was a joke, but you guys go three and one without him. Jimmy Garoppolo plays like a game and a half. He gets hurt. Then Jacoby Brissett comes in. They you guys had that unreal game plan against the Texans where he's just <laughs> running like crazy. Like the Texans had no clue. I think Edelman may have returned a kick for a touchdown in that game or a yeah. punt or something. There's, like, there's a lot of weird stuff going yeah. on. <laughs> but you guys, so you're three and one and then Tom comes back. And I remember from like a fan's perspective in the fan base, we're all like, it's a rallying cry, right? Like we feel like the Patriots have been screwed over by the NFL. So we're excited when Tom comes back. Did you guys have that sense in the building too? Like when Tom came back, because he came back for that Browns game and he just went absolutely nuts. I mean, we knew what time it was once he stepped into that building. Obviously, <laughs> obviously he didn't want to be suspended. That's probably like the only smudge like he has on like his entire career. So, you know, he was chomping at the bit to get out there and win, try and win every single game, have great performances every single game and go out and win a Super Bowl. So, I mean, that's pretty much what happened. Once he came there, we put up a lot of points against Cleveland and we just kind of kind of rolled from there. Obviously, we had some some losses and things of that nature. But we knew once he came into that building, if if Jimmy and Jacoby at the time, they could put us in the right position, we'd be right where we needed to be. And it just so happened. And it was obviously it was some some weird games at the beginning of that year with Jimmy going down and Jacoby coming in and getting hurt and still having to play (laughs) was. It was a it was a lot. Obviously, the year before going into that year, there's a lot of storylines and all that stuff. But the very interesting year, to say the least. But I said we ended up on top even after his suspension. Yeah. And I've said on multiple occasions, I may have told you before, too, that 
I know 07, he broke the record for touchdown passes in a season, but I still believe that 16 was his best year. I mean, you guys with Brady went 11-1 and in the regular season. The only loss was like an absolute battle on Sunday night football against the Seattle Seahawks. Seahawks. So, yeah. yeah, I still contend that that was Brady's best season. We know how it ended in the playoffs. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store like now. Go. From your perspective in 2015, that's where you sort of get your first chance, right, to play consistently. When did it click for you and Tom? Like, when did you know, oh, I'm on the same page as him? Was it that 15 season or a 16 I would categorize for you? Like, that was sort of your breakout season. So when did you know that it was clicking for you and Tom? Uh, I'll probably say that that 15 season. Um, Obviously, we had a lot of injuries that year, like receivers in and out of the lineup and things of that nature. Then we played the Eagles. I forget what game it was. At some point during the year, that was I went over 100 yards that game. That was pretty much like the only receiver like doing anything that game. I feel like that was kind of like the start of like our connection right there. Like almost every other play, he was he was looking for me. First down, second down. I was that game. Darren Sproles they returned like two punts for a touchdown or something like that. A lot of a lot of fluky stuff happened in that game. But I felt like from that point on, we kind of built a trust and connection and kind of learning what he was looking for for me and me just being a viable option if he happened to look my way. So I think, I mean, it even started before then for me because uh, I would say during training camp, honestly, OTA's training camp, because coming into that season, like my, my rookie year, I didn't play that much, obviously. And then we had like eight running backs on the roster coming into that year. So I, I was thinking I was gonna get cut. So <laughs> so like coming to that training camp, OTAs and all that stuff, I was just trying to bust my butt to perform the best I could. So if the if they did end up cutting me, somebody else would be willing to pick me up based off of my preseason game. So ended up making a team that year, still was inactive like the first few games and all that stuff. And then obviously my guy Dion Lewis ended up getting hurt that year. And so that's kind of when I stepped in. And I said that Eagle game was kind of like the point. In my career, where I felt like me and him really built that connection, that trust of, you know, what he needed to see from me. I remember that game. It was a wild game. I think it was a four o'clock game, like our four twenty-five game, whatever the start time was, and it was Chip Kelly, right? That was like yeah. the Chip Kelly Eagles. I yeah. do, rem- I do remember that game. But like, it's such an important position in the Patriots' offense, right? I mean, you go from J.R. Redmond to Kevin Falk to Danny Woodhead to Shane Vereen to yourself. Like, so Tom's got to have complete trust of you. When that happens. All right. So let's get to 28 to three. I want to get to some of the big plays because I'll get to the records that you had in a second. But so Tom has that big time scramble when you guys are down 28 to three. Do you remember that? Like to set you guys up in the red zone. He (laughs) starts going nuts and like, I'm sorry. Okay, like maybe they got something cooking here. And then he finds you and you stop on a dime. I believe the defender was Jalen Collins, where you you like completely. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did have a rough game and you get in the end zone. You remember that play? Yeah, I remember that play. That's, I mean, I remember just scoring that. I was like, yeah, I scored. I mean, 
might not win, but uh, at least my, yeah, my, it's I a Super Bowl. I, I, I don't even know where that ball went. I gotta find where that ball went. I know they took my because <laughs> I kept that ball. I brought it to the sideline. Just never, never received that one. But I, I remember that play. Just threw it late into the flat. I obviously knew you know Jalen Collins was still outside, so I just caught it, turned back inside, and just tried to get to the you know the goal line before anybody could touch me. But I mean, at, at that point, I still kind of thought you still kind of thought the game was pretty much out of reach. You just kind of just try to scratch a claw, kind of make it a little bit, a little bit competitive in a sense, but that's kind of what got the ball rolling. Obviously we needed a whole lot of plays from the defense as well. A little bit of help from the Falcons too. So that's what it takes for a comeback. Yeah. Well, first of all, you got to find that ball, but secondarily it was weird, right? Because like you guys were down big, but you guys were running more plays. It just felt like at times you guys, for lack of a better term, were shooting yourself in the foot and eventually you guys got it together, obviously in the second half, the greatest comeback in the history of the sport. But so then it's 28 to 18 after Amendola gets the touchdown. You guys go for two and you do that play where essentially <laughs> Tom fakes like the snap goes over his head. It's a direct snap to you. How often did you guys practice that play? Like how many two point conversion plays did you guys have ready to go? Uh, you probably had like two or so. And we probably practiced that because Super Bowl, you have like two weeks, you know, before the game and everything. So we we practiced that quite a few times every time. It wasn't necessarily perfect. Just. Just trying to make sure I have him be, you know, kind of close enough to Tom and be on the same page as David so I, I can catch a snap. Because it's not not necessarily easy, you know, catch or not necessarily an easy snap for for David. Because obviously he knows he's supposed to act like he's snapping it to Tom, but he knows Tom isn't catching it. I'm supposed to catch it. So it's kind of a weird thing, but you, you kind of build that trust factor those two weeks throughout. We might have even practiced it before the Super Bowl as well, just never actually ran it. But just felt comfortable with it. I know Kevin Falk did it in the past and things of that nature, but it worked perfectly. Good snap, perfect blocking, and just wedged myself into the end zone. Brady sells it pretty good, too. Like, I remember when I was watching it, like, during the actual game. Not now, obviously, because I remembered. I'm like, oh, shit, this is not yeah. good. Like, could they pick it up and <laughs> run it the other way yeah. or two? But, I mean, hey, Tom, Tom sells it really, really well. Okay, so then, first and 10, it's 28 to 20 at, like, the 21 Tom hits you, you shook Deion Jones after you caught it. Like that was it, like you shook him pretty badly. And then you, you get in the end zone after that, but you you guys get in the end zone after that. Do you remember that play where Deion Jones came up to get you and you just kind of left him in the dust? Yeah, I remember that play because we practiced this like quite a few times throughout the week and it kind of happened similar to that. We knew they ran a few different coverages in the red zone at the time. And if we alerted to the, I'm pretty sure we alerted that play to our to the second play. I knew it was going to be zone coverage. I pretty much just had to get to a spot and just be there. I knew the ball was coming to me as soon as he alerted it. So caught the pass. Obviously, just me, Deion Jones, one-on-one, just stuck my foot in the ground, made a miss. Pretty sure we came back to the same play, like the next play. I almost like dove for the end zone, just just a little bit short, but we literally called the same exact play, like back to back and alerted again because they did the same thing. I tried to dive in the end zone. I just was short, but then ended up scoring like the next play. But that was just something we rep during the week and it happened just like that in practice and it worked like that in the game. And that was supposed to be like one of the strengths of the Falcons defense, right? Like they their linebackers were super fast. Same thing with their safeties and you guys really just torched him. It did feel like you guys sort of wore them out, right? In the set, like going back to what I was saying earlier about running so many plays, it did feel like by the time really midway through the fourth quarter, they looked dead. Did you guys yeah. like have that feeling in the game that you guys had them completely fatigued? It definitely, even in the first half, we were moving the football. We were just kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit, you know, 
Laguerre had the fumble. I think we what we like miss a field goal or something or extra point in the first half. I don't, I don't remember exactly how it went, but we we're moving the football time at the interception, things of that nature. So we we're moving it down the field, just weren't finishing the drives. But it wasn't too big of coaching points like at halftime. Just go out there and finish, compete harder, just play smarter. That's kind of what we did. I mean, their defense was on the field a lot because their offense was scoring a lot of explosive plays and things of that nature. So it's, it's a lot being out there for, you know, 10, 11, 12 drive, play drives each and every time. And they were by the fourth quarter came around, they were gassed and felt like we were really trained. I mean, I was gassed too, honestly, but we were, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were just felt like we were more trained for that moment. And I said, once we saw like that blood in the water, you just had to take it. They, they were fatigued, we were fatigued, but I said, we felt like we had been there before. We had nothing to take to finish it. Okay, so then, yeah, you must have been tired because you barely yeah, came off the ass. field in the yeah. second half. I mean, they couldn't take you out of the game because you knew you were going to have to pass the entire second half. So it wasn't like LeGarrette Blount was going to come into the game right at that moment. I mean, you got to go all all passing game at that particular point in time. All right, so then in overtime, you have the really nice catch and run. And then after that, the interference in the end zone on, I believe it was Martellus Bennett, wasn't it? Yeah, Martellus yeah it was Bennett, Martellus yeah. Bennett in the end zone. So then you get the pitch. You get in the end zone, you score. LeGarrette Blunt comes flying out. He <laughs> tackles you in the end zone. Like, there's some, like, questions. Like, was he in? Like, Edelman's, like, on NFL Films talking to, like, some of the guys about it. But Brady's wondering if it's in, and it was in. I mean, you knew it right away. But, like, if I had that, and I got, you're one of two players that's ever done that, right? An overtime touchdown to end the Super Bowl. Like, I would watch it, like, 50 times a day. <laughs> like, what's it like to have that play? I mean, it's pretty crazy, honestly. You know, the... Cause I was in on the first play. I don't. I don't really remember what we ran that first one. First and goal, ran some play. I don't remember it. Then like coming off on the field, like Laguerre was coming in the play where they threw it to Marty. I was thinking we we're gonna run it with Laguerre. I don't really remember what I said to him. I'm just like, go score, like please, like I'm like oh gas, it's just it's just like <laughs> end, just end this. So when they when they threw it to Marty, I was kind of surprised we you know threw that in general. But whatever, it, we got pass interference and just came back in. Ran that toss play, and like I said, I just wanted to find a way to end the game. I was gassed. I was I was so tired. Obviously, you couldn't tell by the way I was sprinting. But <laughs> after that, but it's just it's just crazy to be a part of history. Like I said, being able to play in a Super Bowl is one of the greatest feelings in the world as an athlete, as an NFL player. You dreamed of being in that position, and I got my opportunity to play. So I just wanted to make the most of that. All right, so I want to get your take on two other plays in the game that weren't you, but it's 28 to 12. And it feels like, all right, you may have a chance here after you guys kick the field goal after your touchdown, you guys get a field goal. I think the next drive it's 28 to 12. I know the score is 28 to 12 when this happens. Hightower has the sack. You can see like they pan to Tom and Tom's like just yelling ball. What's the reaction like on the sideline when it's 28 to 12 and Hightower makes that play? Because by the way, he is such like an underrated Patriot in every yeah. Super Bowl. This guy comes up with big plays. Like you yeah. go back to the Seahawks game. He has the huge tackle on Marshawn, Marshawn Lynch before yeah. the interception. Yeah. I mean, very, that's, that's my guy right there. That's one of my best friends on the team. He, we talk a lot still. He made a lot of big plays for us throughout his career. He said he could cover, he could tackle, he can, you know, knock decleat linemen off their feet, decleat, you know, running backs trying to block them as, when we just got that play, that was, that was exactly what we needed. In order to make a comeback, you're not need big plays on offense or, you know, score touchdowns, and you're going to need turnovers or stops from your defense. And the turnovers kind of speed the process up a lot more because you don't have to deal with the punts and, you know, driving the ball 70, 80 yards down the field. So that play right there, I always say that's what kind of 
gave us like that true confidence that we were mm. really going to win that football game because got a short field turnover that momentum shifts and like I said, their their sideline like oh, but our sideline we're <laughs> you know you know we're late like this like it's time like this is where we got to lock in to finish this thing off. So that was a a huge huge play in the game. Yeah, another huge play after that like Long draws the holding penalty late mm-hmm. after like the catch that will never be remembered from Julio Jones, which yeah. I still think may be oh, the greatest greatest yeah, catch I, I've I ever seen. That. <laughs> I don't know how he stayed in bounds. Like I I really still like if even if you go back and watch it, James like. No human being should be able to stay in bounds on that play. Like it just it made no sense. I mean, obviously, we know Julio Jones was one of the like great freak athletes of all time. He was unbelievable. But anyway, so I wanted to get so it's 28 to 20 and Edelman makes that crazy catch. Now, you it seemed like you had a really good vantage point because you're signaling right away that it's a catch. So you you saw it live like you knew right away that it was going to be a catch. Yeah, I I had the best angle in the house for that one. I mean, it's a, <laughs> I was literally right there for it. I saw it fly in the air because I, I was kind of sprinting over there to kind of make sure, you know, it wasn't intercepted because I saw the guy tipping and all that stuff. And then just feel like everything kind of went in slow motion. I'm sure it went in slow motion for Julian, too, in order for him to catch a ball like that. And just you just see I could, I could see his hand just being underneath the ball and just see see it not touching the ground and. I just knew right away it was it was just funny him and Brian Poole, pretty sure the guy's name, where they were just going at he's like, I'm telling you it's a catch. Look at the like looking at the Jumbotron <laughs> and all that stuff. It was, that was just one of the craziest catches you can to be like laying on top of people and be able to like just trap a ball right before it, you know, it doesn't hit the ground. It's takes crazy concentration. What was what was it he kept yelling during the game? Because it's on like the NFL. Was it like you got to believe or something? And he says yeah. it to Bill after the game, and Bill's like, "Oh yeah, hell yeah!" yeah I think yeah, it was he, you got to believe, right? Yeah, he he always says that every like, you got to believe, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right, so <laughs> after the game, Tom says that you should you should have won the MVP. He gives you the truck, right? That like the MVP gets, and then. You had 20 points, Super Bowl record, tied for the most touchdowns with three. The other guys, Roger Craig, Jerry Rice, Ricky Waters, and Terrell Davis. I mean, you may have heard of a couple of those guys. (laughs) They're pretty good. Most receptions in a single game, which was 14 in the Super Bowl. And I know the win, of course, is the most important to you, James. But you got to tell me, what's your favorite record out of those ones? Uh, that's, That's tough, I guess. Most points, probably, I would say, because obviously there's a lot of, you know, Hall of Fame and great players that have played in Super Bowls. And to have the most points in a Super Bowl out of all those guys, it's pretty crazy to think about. Like, even when you mentioned, like, Ricky Waters, Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, all those guys, like, you know how many Super Bowls Jerry Rice played in, like, Terrell Davis and stuff? Like, it's it's crazy. Like I said, it's being in that game, being in a Super Bowl, you want to, Obviously, you want to win the football game first and foremost, but you want to put your mark on it. You want to make sure you do whatever you can to help your team win it. Like I said, that's what I that's what I want to do. Because because in 2014, for myself as a competitor, watching my team play that that was that was hard for me. Obviously, I didn't play all year long, so I didn't think I was going to be playing in that game. But it's hard as a competitor. You know, you want to be out there with your teammates fighting and trying to win the game that you practice all year long and. I always said if I ever got my chance to get out there, I was going to do whatever it took to try and help my team win, like I said. <laughs> and that's what happened for <laughs> Well, you certainly did in that game. And then let's go to 17. So you guys lose to the Eagles, but then you come back in 18. I believe that's the first year you were named a captain, right? 2018? 
Yeah, I believe something like that. One of those years. <laughs> okay, so that 18 year was kind of weird, right? Like it wasn't yeah. the typical Patriots dominant team that we saw in 17, 16, 14, et cetera. But I mean, you had losses to like Matt Patricia and the Lions. I believe you guys lost to Marcus Mariota and the Titans. And then you had a couple of losses late, which we ordinarily didn't see, right? I think it's 14 and 15 Steelers and Dolphins back-to-back losses. And yeah. starting to think like, what is this team? Like, are they good enough to make a Super Bowl run? When did you know? Was it when you like you got into the because I have to imagine most years when you're playing on that team, you felt like, OK, we have a chance to win a Super Bowl. But 18 must have been like it. Like, how good are we? Like, when did you know that you guys had the ability to win that year? I think we always knew we had the ability. We just were pretty inconsistent kind of throughout the year. And we found different ways to win. Obviously, we could run the football. We could throw it. And sometimes, you know, our defense kind of carried us. But it was just kind of an up and down year for us. But we knew. You know, once we get in playoff time, obviously, once you hit November, you kind of want to be playing your best football. We didn't necessarily do that. You know, with the was that the year of the Miami Miracle? I'm pretty sure that was something. Yeah, like when that. Gronk yeah. was on the yeah. field. Yeah. yeah, that was something. Yeah. <laughs> I still feel bad for Gronk. Like, he shouldn't yeah. have been out there. Like yeah. It, yeah, not his fault. <laughs> he had enough good moments, though. Yeah, yeah, he had plenty of good moments. But, yeah, I mean, that year was all over the place. I think, obviously, we were confident no matter what. I think winning in Kansas City, I think that's kind of – that was huge for us. Nobody thinking we could go in there and win. And we went out there and did that in the freezing cold. That game was cold as shit, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. It looked but, it. Yeah. And winning winning that one against Mahomes and company, that was that was a tough matchup. And then, you know, winning the Super Bowl against the Rams, that was that was a tough matchup too. Obviously it was low scoring, not what you know many people wanted to see, but it was a battle. That was, that was tough for me. I didn't really do shit in that game. They, they had a good game plan for me. They were they were hitting the shit out of me every like every route. I, I try to get out, things of that nature. So they, they had a good game plan. I couldn't do too much in that one. But that was a hard-fought one, big defensive performance. You know, those guys obviously run a lot of man coverage. Usually they switched up into a lot of zone. That kind of confused those guys, shut down Gurley, you know, tried to make Jared Goff beat him and end up throwing a pick in the end. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, that was unbelievable chase down speed, too. It was it Jason McCourty that yeah, tipped yeah, that yeah, ball yeah. in the end zone. Yeah. And I believe it was Brandon Cooks out there, wasn't it? Like yeah, the, yeah. the the former Patriot. Yeah, wide open. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. All right, so you mentioned uh, the Super Bowl, you weren't heavily involved, but the Chargers game prior to that, or in the divisional round you were, mm-hmm. you had 15 receptions in that game. Edelman had 151 receiving yards. And it just felt like to me that this was the dumbest game plan I think that I've ever seen from a team playing against the Patriots. Like, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like they were just showing Tom the same defense the entire time, the same look. And it was like, well, it was Gus Bradley was the defensive yeah. coordinator. So you don't have the personnel that you had in Seattle with Richard Sherman and Chancellor <laughs> and Earl Thomas and all those guys, right? Did it yeah. feel like, because it looked like it was just Tom shooting fish at a barrel. Is that what it felt like playing against those guys? Yeah, I mean, right out of the gate, like, I remember the first drive, I feel like I touched the ball, like, three or four times, and we just, like, kind of walked the ball down the field. We were just like, yeah, this is – It's over? Much, yeah, pretty, they pretty much kept <laughs> running the same, the same thing all game long and just very conservative, you know, then blitz and just kind of sat in zone coverage, and we, you know, pretty much just picked it apart. Obviously, I had the big play with Keenan Allen early in the game. That's pretty much was kind of it for them. But we, we were rolling on offense. Sony was running it. Rex was running it. Now I was catching passes, Julian was catching passes. We pretty much had our way out there. We, we were we were ready to go. But obviously that team had a lot of hype, but, you know, the Chargers, they're always a team with a lot of hype, and they just never finish <laughs> in the yeah. playoffs for, for whatever reason. But, 
Like I said, we we definitely were ready for that moment for sure. Well, and I think I know your answer to this because I kind of heard you allude to it. Uh, you, you mentioned that Chiefs game, which was cold and it was crazy. But I do remember like prior to that game, right? Where And I, like I'm looking through like the greatest Patriots wins and I don't even know how to rank them. Like the Seattle one was awesome. 28 to three. I mean, maybe that's the answer. But the Chiefs one that you mentioned, that's got to be right up there because that was a crazy game. Tom was so good in overtime. And the thing that stuck out to me about like prior to that game is right after the Chargers win, Tom comes out and his post-game interview says, everybody thinks we suck. And I'm like, okay, this is like one of the only times like in recent Patriots history where they can actually play the underdog role, right? Like everybody was picking the Chiefs. They were the new team coming up. But was that like when did you guys all see Tom say that like after the game? Did you guys see the video of that? Or was that was that like a rallying cry the whole time? Like Tom putting it out there that everybody's doubting us? I mean, I think it's kind of a mindset thing. I said. Everybody was kind of writing us off. Like I said, we were, you know, pretty inconsistent throughout the year. And obviously, Kansas City was the new young, new young quarterback, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, you know, all those guys. And their defense was really good as well. So, like I said, obviously, they, they're, you know, should have been favored in that game because they're playing on their home turf, hosting AFC Championship, you know, a lot on the line and an inconsistent Patriot team coming in to play them. So, I mean, that was just kind of our rallying cry. I mean, Bill's like, if you want to make it to the Super Bowl, you got to be able to win on the road in the toughest environment. And I mean, it was tough. It was loud as hell, cold as hell. I can repeat that again. And like I said, those guys are always a tough matchup whenever Patrick Mahomes is back there at quarterback and took all the way to the end. And like I said, it was a very, very tough football game. Obviously, the offside help, uh, offsides and all that stuff that helped us too with D four. That's that's my guy too, <laughs> helped us out. But <laughs> said, it was a, <laughs> it was just a hard fought game. And like I said, that's 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 one of the best feelings going on the road, especially at that point in the season and being able to win in that type of environment. That's that's a lot of fun. Obviously, it's not fun being on their side of things, but <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, one more Brady thing. So. I was talking to Ted Johnson about just like, hey, was there any extra juice when it was like Brady versus Manning? But like his point was essentially like in the early dynasty for them, it was more about like the Patriots defense against Peyton Manning, right? Because Tom was just becoming Tom Brady, like the greatest of all time. He wasn't like that established guy yet when you, of course, played with him. He was that established guy. But what was like Brady Manning week like? Was it any different than usual? Because obviously the hype around the game was crazy. I mean, I don't think it was. Anything unusual is just you got to be able to score points to win those football games. We have a, you know, another extremely talented and great quarterback on the other side of the ball. We got to do our part on offense to help the defense out because obviously we don't score enough points and they score a lot of points. We're probably going to lose. So we had to be at our best. You know, Tom obviously wanted to be at his best. I said, whenever you play, you know, quote unquote, the one of the top teams or top players, you want to go out there and perform your best. I think that's that's pretty much what it was. It's nothing, not like you put like a, you know, stamp on that game. Like, I mean, obviously you can't wait for the matchup, but you just got to heighten your level of play when those type of games come around. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the, like the awesome things that we had for like 15 years or so, or it's just Tom versus Peyton every year. And it is crazy. Like since Peyton went, left the NFL, Tom won two more, <laughs> what do he win? Two or three more Super yeah, Bowls. He won another MVP. It. And that was like it's his biggest rival. And he basically yeah. had another Hall of Fame career after his biggest rival 
retired. Yeah, yeah it would be three Super Bowls because he won in 16, 18, and then he won 18. with the Bucks, and then yeah. he won the MVP in 17. So, I mean, basically another insane. Hall of Fame career post-Payton. <laughs> hey, so before I let you go, James, so I'm having a real difficult time in terms of who I want to win the Super Bowl because I'm looking at it like, okay, the Chiefs, if they win, like, are they starting to become that next dynasty? So I don't want that to happen. Now, I don't think... Pat Mahomes can, I know he's got a long runway, can get to Tom just because it's like, well, Tom beat him twice in the postseason already. He beat, He's 0-2 against Tom in the Super Bowl, in the playoffs. He's only got one other loss besides that. He lost to Joe Burrow last year. Like, Burrow, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, all his losses come to Tom Brady. But anyway, obviously, it's not going to happen anymore. But I do feel like the Chiefs obviously becoming a dynasty. But then on the other side of it, it's like, we watched Philly a couple of years ago, of course, beat you guys in the Super Bowl, and it's Philly and it's Philly fans. Like, I have a difficult time cheering for them. <laughs> so, two-parter here. From your perspective, who do you want to see win and who do you think is going to win? Who do I want to see win? Uh, I'm a Jalen Hurts guy. I really like yeah, Jalen Hurts, yeah, so I'm pulling yeah. for him. Yeah, I like Jalen Hurts. I like the way he played, you know, this year. And I, I wonder whether he's going to be able to you know, be that guy to, you know, win the game with his arm, and he, he's been able to do that all year long. I was a Philly fan growing up, so you know I would I would love to see Philly win the win the football game. Obviously, I didn't like when they beat us, you know, in 2017. But you know, being a Philly fan growing up, I like to see them, you know, beat Patrick Mahomes and company. Not I, I think I think they will win the football game. To me, they're better on you know, quote unquote on paper. I think they're better on both sides of the ball. I think they can run the ball more effectively. I think they can throw it more effectively. And then the threat of Jalen Hurts' legs, and then that. That defense, I feel like they're really good at every level. I feel like their weakest spot is probably the linebacker position, but they have a good secondary. They have a good front. And like I said, those linebackers don't have to do too much. They just run and make tackles, run and make plays. So it's going to be an interesting matchup, especially with the receivers being banged up for the Chiefs too. So that would be very, very interesting. It's hard to doubt Mahomes too in that moment because he's going to be highly motivated. Um, he's been highly motiv- motivated all year long with the departure of Tyreek Hill and everybody kind of wonder whether he'd be able to put up numbers and stuff. And he did it with, you know, receivers being in and out of lineup all year long, inconsistent play from them. He still went out there and threw for 5,000 yards <laughs> and all that stuff. So I still think I give Philly the edge just because they can run the football. I don't trust. I mean, I've been saying I don't trust the Chiefs defense all year long, but they've been somehow <laughs> – shut teams down but uh i don't know i just don't trust them versus that eagles offense <laughs> yeah that eagles defense though you're right though that defensive line i mean they're like eight deep they they can just yeah. like sh- shift the whole f- front four out if they really <laughs> yeah. want to i mean they got and i forgot like i'm watching the playoff game last week and i'm like oh and dominic and sue's on the team like yeah i, yeah. I, I, I totally I, forgot I said, about I, that i said the same thing as that stink ass number 71 or whatever the hell number he's wearing he looks so weird <laughs> looks so weird with that number on but yeah i said the same thing i was like damn they got sue too like shit <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is three-time Super Bowl champ James White. Of course, we went through some of the records he had against the Atlanta Falcons. James, had a blast going down memory lane with you, man. Had a lot of fun, of course, watching those games as well. But hey, enjoy the game on Sunday, and I think I'm with you. Let's see the Eagles win this game. I'll be happy if that happens, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Great stuff there from our buddy James White. Time now to... Do the greatest Boston bet of the week, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. So I'll give you one Boston one, then a couple of Super Bowl props I'm looking at. So first of all, Pasternak now, the odds for the Rocket Richard Award, of course, for the most goals in the NHL. He's now at plus 200, which that's pretty good value, considering right now he's just three behind Connor McDavid, which is, of course, second 
in the NHL. So worth putting some money down, plus 200 for Pasta to win that. And then let's have some fun with some Super Bowl picks and props. So first one, I think the Chiefs are going to win the game. I just... Pat Mahomes cannot have a losing record in the Super Bowl, lose another Super Bowl after, of course, he had the first one against San Francisco, but lost to Tom Brady. I got to feel like the Chiefs win this game. I like the Chiefs plus 104 on the money line, and they can actually play up the underdog role a little bit, which hasn't been with hasn't been the case for the Chiefs, really, since they started rolling in 2018 when Mahomes took over as the starter. Remember, like a lot of people were picking the Bengals, and now this week they legitimately are the underdogs in the game. All right, then how about this one? A same game parlay, plus 320. Kelsey over seven and a half receptions. A.J. Brown over five and a half receptions. So that's plus 320. And if you look at it, the past two games for Kelsey, 14 and seven. So I like that in terms of his receptions total. For whatever reason, teams just cannot cover Travis Kelsey. Say double team, he still gets wide open. All right, another same game parlay. This is for plus 258. Hertz goes over 49 and a half rushing yards. And Mahomes goes over 19 and a half rushing yards. So Mahomes always, it seems like in these games, has a few big scrambles. And the ankle's got to be better. Like even the big play he made where he got, he drew the late hit, that was a big scramble for him. And we've seen this time and time again in the postseason. And the ankle's better. I feel like he goes over that 19 and a half. Even if he just has like three scrambles in this game, he'll get over that. And then Hurts, over 49 and a half, hasn't been over that this postseason. But I feel like the rushes are going to be up for Hurts in this game. So I like that one for plus 258. Hurts over 49 and a half rushing yards. Mahomes over 19 and a half rushing yards. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172, or you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 